you are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to be joined by Sarah Davis, a tutor at St. John's College. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It's great to have you here. We love having tutors from St. John's College on. And and, uh, let's start with your philosophic interest. I know you have this philosophic interest in culture shock. And I wonder, can you tell me... Tell me more about that. What is it? Sure. So my PhD work was in cultural anthropology, um, and it was always a very philosophic approach to cultural anthropology. The way I think about the philosophic interest in culture shock is this, that human beings, it seems to me, everywhere and always find themselves in worlds that are sort of carved up by conventions and sort of we find ourselves in worlds where there are normative ways of behaving, of believing, of speaking. Um, And one of the remarkable things is that we both sort of take those things for, for granted right from the start, but we're also capable of, and it happens whether we want it to or not, sort of having these moments of of cracking through those normative ways to see that what we thought was just natural in the way things are is in fact just one way that things are. And I think that that can be, you know, I describe it as culture shock. As a cultural anthropologist, it actually happens when you go abroad and are faced with radically different ways of doing things. But I think it can happen at home as well. in many different ways. As an Englishman who now lives in America, I can totally understand culture shock. But but for me, I don't know, I, I guess I feel like when you describe that, that we find ourselves in worlds that are carved up by mm-hmm. these norms, are they carved up by norms or are they supported in the sense, are they created? Uh, and I guess I'm asking, is there a is there an overlap between different cultures whereby we're all supporting each other in our different cultures? So, so yeah. in, in some sense, it's a mutual net of different structures as opposed to discrete entities that are carved up. Yeah, I think that that, that seems right to me. Um, one of the places that that gets tricky, and I'm not sure, I mean, we'll have to discover what we're saying, but um, is I think that when we think about Uh, culture as a net, and I don't think this is exactly what you mean, but if we think about um, the idea that there is an objective reality and then there are different ways in which different cultures sort of um, describe that through both norms and practices and beliefs and also language, and that then there's some overlap and we sort of can tap into each other's systems of belief, what we're what we're suggesting is that there's this underlying reality, and that is what is linking us together. We have different nets that will sort of be like family resemblances, but ultimately we can connect through the fact that there are simply the way things are. And I've had moments where I, I really start to question that. I mean, um, I have this example of one of the first cultural anthropology classes I took um, as an undergrad watching this film um, of a Papua New Guinean tribe mm-hmm. um, where the sort of chief big man is relating an experience of um, 
his tribe having been uh, attacked by a neighboring tribe. And he's talking about all of the people who died in that incident. And he has sort of a gleam in his eye. And he's ostensibly sort of laughing, like bubbling over with expression that looked to me like laughter. Mm -hmm. And that was a moment for me of what is going on here? I simply have no access. I see the words, the subtitles on the screen, and I don't know what it means. And I think one way of approaching that is to say, well, I have my own code for experiences of this sort. And if I can sort of tap into which aspect of my code matches an aspect of his code, I'll have a bridge. But over the course of my undergraduate education and just sort of my my intellectual life since then, I've started to really wonder about that, whether it is the case that we all have sort of the same stuff and we code it differently, or whether human beings have this sort of remarkable capacity to, to the way meaningful worlds rise up has the possibility of bringing in sort of new things, things that I have never felt or thought before, um, which suggests that that underlying thing rather than an objective reality which we are coding has a kind of deep indeterminacy to it. What if, what if we are discovering? Mm -hmm. what, what if, and, and I don't know myself, and, and I'm really being pushed here, uh, in terms of is there an objective reality that we are coding or, or, or is there something more? But you seem to be, if I understand you, you yeah. seem to be saying that because there are these moments that are so different, that that, that seems to be the, a discrete unit. But could it not be that we are just uncovering something that someone else has discovered in a different way? In, in the sense of of when when you see that that incident that you were mm -hmm. that you were describing, they have tapped into something about the world that you just haven't seen yet. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think I agree with that. Um, the question then becomes this thing about the world that I just haven't seen, again, going pushing the question of, of objective reality. Is it the case that out there, there is, in sort of quotes out there, there is some sum total of stuff right. that that is the truth of it, is the whole, and that we as human beings access parts of it. And so when I encounter this radically other way, I'm getting a little bit more of it. Um, I'm getting a little bit of bigger of peace. And I think that that sort of falls into um, a scientific vision of the whole, which is it's a sum total of stuff. And our job as sort of inquiring human beings is to collect and organize that stuff. And that will give us access. And what I'm always sort of pushing and interested in is the idea that what if in principle it is indeterminate? That's the big thought is – if, if you don't get to collect an order, if these moments of culture shock are in some ways widening your horizon, but they're also calling attention to the way in which horizons are our access to worlds, that new things come into view. Um, and that's not just a contingent fact, a fact about the way we as humans access stuff, but it looks like something about what world is, is that kind of horizon, an increasing horizon always and everywhere. If we got rid of that, if the scientific kind of layman's term scientific right, right. project was ever completed and there was nothing left to say, would we be humans in a world any longer? See, it's so interesting for me that you bring this into the scientific realm and, and call me out on that, I guess, yeah. because having come from an astrophysics <laughs> background originally myself, but I was thinking that where, where science has tried to form some grand unified theory, which I think 
is always to be, you know, that which we cannot fully work out. Mm -hmm. You seem to be talking from a perspective of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, mm -hmm. that, that as you view it, it changes, and, and, or, or that nothing can be fully present without the viewer, or, or that which is, is changed with the viewer. Am I reading too much into that? No, I think that's probably right. Um, I think we do the Heisenberg uh, principle in senior lab at St. John's, and I haven't done that yet, so I don't want to talk with too much authority about it. <laughs> but what I, what I, uh, the, the thing that I would sort of add to that is, um, from my point of view, again, a sort of danger of making it into a subjectivity issue, because. Where I can see a kind of slippage maybe is something like we grant that the world, the reality is out there, but we have to say any kind of knowing is going to be altered by the knower, the subject. Right. So then we have to qualify the kind of knowledge we have, but still we let stand this idea of the objective reality. The, the principle of uncertainty comes from us as a filter that's an imperfect filter. And there are times where I want to make it even more radical than that and say, let's not split the subject and the object. Let's say something like what world always is, what it necessarily is, has this kind of partial character to it, this not quite knowable character to it. And it's not simply a matter of the human sort of filter imperfection uh, uh, question, but something about what we mean by world. That's a that's right. a tricky one, I think. But and I think for me, you're, you're challenging me in the sense that, um, again, I guess from my scientific original scientific mm -hmm. background, things are there to be uncovered. Mm -hmm. But but you're reminding there is no just as I say to my Torah study group, yeah. there is no text without a reader. Mm -hmm. um, and people say, well, there is if I put it in the cupboard, in the shelf or whatever, but, but not really. And it's, it's the old thing about if a tree falls in the woods, yeah. you know, does it make a sound? That's not really relevant. What's relevant to us in our lives is mm -hmm. that moment when we do experience it. Yeah. And so whether or not there is an objective reality outside, I, I guess what I'm taking from you is what's key is when it comes to the point of viewing, mm -hmm. that's the where the subjectivity immediately comes in. Yeah. Um, I also think I think about when I taught my freshman lab class at St. John's and we had conversations like this. Of course, this is, you know, right up our alley. Um, and I, I think that the question that I would ask them is something like um, – a lot of people would say, clearly, the scientific project is constantly changing. It's constantly depends on what questions we ask. And that seems to be going along with the subjectivity line. Right. Depends on what we're looking at. Um, and that it can never simply end in that way, because it does have to do with the questions that are being asked. Um, and that seems right. There are moments where I wonder about if there's a slight difference between saying, um, what would it mean to think that the, the stuff out there that we're trying to discover, we're trying to understand, what would it mean to say that it was uh, not fully knowable in principle, that right. part of what we need to understand about it is that it is not fully showing itself? I mean, this gets into – my students know this. This is like my big <laughs> thought. But it has something to do with – I think about it in terms of contact, of when I – bump up against the most materially 
self-evident thing. I bump it. I, I touch it. I, I can kind of encounter it. That that happens at its edge. The bump is possible because I meet it at its edge. Yeah. And it seems to me that the edge implies that it is not the whole thing. There's something beyond it. That when I bump it, I'm both getting it to show itself, but it's also simultaneously withholding itself. And that that withholding is not because I haven't unveiled it yet. It is, in principle, part of what the showing amounts to. You can't separate the two. And once that starts to, you know, we start to play with that, it looks like this objective manifest world that built in potentially is something in principle that is not simply shown. That's very exciting to me. <laughs> and, uh, it's extraordinary. Um, just if no other reason than two weeks ago, one of our guests was talking about the edge, in, in, but in a totally different way. Uh-huh. And, and so the connection is wonderful for me. I wonder, I, I wonder what that means about ourselves, I guess, mm-hmm. because, uh, I mean, it's hard enough to know another person but even ourselves, yeah. if we are, does that mean, do I encounter myself on my own edge? Yes, I love that thought. Um, one of, uh, I like to think about Oedipus, Tyrannus, the Sophocles play, where I think, and it's funny because it's so ancient, but I think it is about, um, so Oedipus has this sense that he knows himself fully, not in the way you were just saying, not at his edge, but sort of down to the bottom like a puzzle. He knows every piece. And I think the tragedy of that play is meant to show us that, in fact, when we consider ourselves sort of like puzzles, that we could know ourselves wholly, not at the edge, not as something that has this indeterminacy, that way great tragedy lies. Um, I don't want to give away the end of the play, but Spoil- <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> more than a thousand-year-old play. Yes, <laughs> but I do think that there's something to that. that there, and there's also great um, – I don't know what the right word is, sort of wonder or awe when you start to consider yourself in that way at at your own edge. It means that you're not simply known to yourself. I think it's also another way of thinking about human freedom, right? right? That really what being free means has to mean that we're not simply determined in some deep way, not that we sort of we have kind of our puzzle pieces and over the course of our lives we come to know ourselves and then we fit ourselves together and that's who we are, that would be fixed. In some way, real freedom means we have potentiality that has not yet been written. And I think that's the same idea of knowing yourself at the edge. We've got to take a pause. Um, When we come back, I want to talk more about this edge because I'm I'm really fascinated by this idea and, and therefore what it is to know ourselves and to mm-hmm. know the other. So we'll just take a, a quick pause. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich and my guest this evening, Sarah Davis, tutor from St. John's College. Welcome back to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Uh, my guest this evening, Sarah Davis, a tutor at St. John's College. Um, and we've been having an extraordinary discussion <laughs> uh, about the edge Uh, And uh, how we encounter the other and indeed how we then even encounter ourselves. When I think of edge, I think of not just boundary, but also precipice. Uh I think of a place of danger. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm wondering, is the encounter with the other then? Um, and, and that could mean the other person, but that could also mean mm-hmm. society itself, because when we started, we were talking about societies. Could that be a place of danger where, where, where different societies' understandings of the world or the way that they read the world is uh, – could that, could that be dangerous perhaps? 
Yeah, I think um, there's no way around the fact that it could be dangerous. Um, I'm thinking at the interpersonal level, just at the moment, it's easier for me. Um, and I think maybe a, a word we could use is risk. Mm. Um, I think that it's inherently risky. Um, but I do wonder whether that space of risk, that precipice, is both the source of danger, even great danger, but also maybe the, the sort of richest, the possibility for right. the richest moment of encounter. That when we see another, uh, we were just reading in my uh, final senior seminar of the year at St. John's, um, Aristotle on friendship. And the way I take him to be thinking about friendship is just this, is that you sort of, you meet the person at their edge, a kind of um, the risk of allowing someone to be truly indeterminate, to, to, to encounter their true freedom right. and, and be a kind of landing, I, this is my language, but a sure. landing strip for, for them, that that kind of great risk, rather than having already determined, you know, we like each other because we have these things in common or, right. or I give you this and you give me that, which are all very valid ways of being with people, sure. but that this kind of, um, this other kind where the, the indeterminacy of the other is the source of of the friendship. And he'll move to think about, and we don't have to go here, but <laughs> about sort of a philosophic that actually thinking philosophically together is a, is a version of that, is where we really don't know quite what's coming. We're not repeating ideas that right. we've already heard. We're exploring in a real way. Um, I think that's a model, and it may be a metaphor. I think there are lots of ways in which this kind of risky, um, and I think it's also for me where deep care can mm. come from like it can be a source of of great uh, affection and kind of responsibility to the other. I also see the source of it of that there. Um, but you're right to say that because there is great risk, I do think that danger lurks there, and it's a little scary. It, but it can be. I mean, I mean, we all know that from interpersonal relations anyway. When friendships suddenly break down and so on. But I think you know, and maybe I'm pushing this um, precipice metaphor a yeah. bit far. But it's that moment of exhilaration when mm. if you know you're safe, and I think that safety is an important part of it. If you know you're safe, you know you can jump off and have that instantaneous moment of exhilaration, which is actually that moment of meeting that that edge, isn't it, and transcending yeah. the edge in some sense. No, I think that's true. And it's, it's also exciting that this is, a, I think, an experience we also know that you may feel safe at the precipice and ready to, to leap, but it may be the other person that allows that to happen for you in a certain way. So if we go back to the Oedipus idea of you don't know yourself like a puzzle, right. that you can't just elicit all the sides of you. You don't, you know, sometimes something happens to you, you become something that you mm. didn't quite know mm. you were. And a friend as, as the not the opportunity, that sounds too opportunistic, but but kind of human relationship as an area where your becoming can happen. That's such a, it's such a beautiful image for me of, of what it means to sort of be there for one another. And I think it's the, the, the rather lovely idea that friends sometimes know us better than we know ourselves, yeah. um, even if we might resist the things that they tell us about ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. So let, let me ask, I mean, you, when we started, you were talking about convention particularly. Yeah. Um, is it possible for the convention to be that which transcends convention? By which I mean, um, 
what if the norm of society is that which naturally goes beyond? That, that seems to me like it's sounding like the ideal kind of society for you, the one where we aren't just stuck in our convention but are moving beyond. Mm-hmm. And, and I, wa- I wonder where you are with that. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard question. Um, in part, I think that in all societies everywhere, this will show up because it's what right. human beings do, right. right? Whether it's in humor, we make jokes right. that sort of call the ordinary into question or tragedy or any number of things. But I think it's about the way the society sort of handles it, the way it embodies that particular, that, that side of the human being. Um, so to think about my ideal society, mm-hmm. which um, I... I don't often, I don't actually go in that direction that often, but it would be somehow to think about what, in what way is it the most fruitful for for human beings to sort of experience this part of themselves and others. Um, that's, that's hard. Mm. Um, one of the things that comes to mind, and I don't know how useful this is, is uh, a certain something like capitalism, Mm -hmm. which I'm going to (laughs) critique, but that in some ways, um, the self-transcendence, you know, sort of pushing past one's own horizon, I think it's arguable that that might be the engine of capitalism. But the idea that we become alienated from what that is expressing, and we we become kind of enslaved to the product as though, and forgetful of, and I I mean forgetful in kind of a deep way, Mm. forgetful of the urge that is sort of making that a societal form of expression that's kind of addictive because I think we do feel heights at self-transcendence. But forgetting forget this kind of deep forgetfulness of what is this? Where is the satisfaction coming from? What is it showing us about our own humanity mm. when we as a society turn away from that and don't ask that at all, don't have any sort of practice of reflection or recollection? That I think is... Um, leads to a kind of deadening of the human spirit rather than what we were just talking about with the precipice and everything right. else. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, and I naturally, I hear it through a religious lens being a rabbi. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly when you're talking about self-transcendence, mm-hmm. um, it's the driving force for capitalism. But of course, religious communities have often um, critiqued such behavior because yeah. it's not just all about the self, it's about transcending as as communities yeah and so i guess i wonder since um from a religious perspective since religion is very often cultural but very often um culture shock in the sense of of deliberately looks at a society like one which you've just described and says no that's not okay we need to transcend those boundaries so i guess i guess my question for you and i'm giving you free 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 (laughs) reign for critique here of religion um is is religion for you cultural or do you see it uh, you know is it is it cultural and comforting or is it shocking and transformative mm-hmm. where do you hold religion to be yeah that's also a hard question i mean i think and this is sort of to sidestep it but i do think that, the, that this is a real answer in some respect um that i think it really depends on one's true 
attitude towards whatever practice it is. Mm. So that the the same thing that could be a kind of wrenching out of the ordinary and a, a awakening a community, in fact, of saying here, I, I think of ritual in that way. And I sometimes even think the philosophic activity we do at St. John's has this character of bringing a community together and through certain kinds of practices, pulling us out of the ordinary. Mm. And I wouldn't even say actually out of the ordinary into the extraordinary. It's kind of the other way around, reminding ourselves of the truly extraordinary mm. character of the everyday. But you can imagine very much people sort of, if it becomes rote and and too solidified and this is just what we do, um, even in an impassioned way, I think that's going to be a problem. That something about this cracking character, I don't think it has to be destructive. It's not like I think that there is a way that being at home in the world in a in in that that richest way can come together with this kind of precipice character. That's that's the ideal. So I can very much imagine um, a religious community doing that. Um, there are questions there that I'm not answering, and I know that. And for myself as well, I mean, there are questions about how we think about um, – yeah, they're, they're sort of too big for me to <laughs> – <laughs> well, well, I, th- I think as a rabbi – personally, as a rabbi, I think you've answered that question extraordinarily. Um, and I, I mean that quite sincerely in the sense – I remember my um, – one of my tutors and friends, Rabbi Tony Bayfield from back in England, um, would talk about dwellers and seekers. Mm. Um, and, and in every community, there are dwellers and seekers. And there are also communities that are communities of dwellers and communities of mm-hmm. seekers. And, and I, I hear that in, in what you're saying in that sense of it, it, it's, it's not a fair question almost to say, is religion this or that? Yeah. But, it, but it's how we approach religion so that it can be transformative or it can be cultural and, and holding us where we are. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe maybe the role of religious communities, and I, I guess I'm sort of reflecting for myself mm-hmm. as a member of clergy, maybe that goal is to constantly assess and to ask ourselves, have we become too comfortable? Have we become too established and normative? Yeah. And, and what you said, I, I think it, it was quite extraordinary, uh, of the idea of reminding ourselves of the extraordinary character of every day. Mm-hmm. Again, from, from the Jewish perspective, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, mm-hmm. talking about radical amazement, yeah. um, talking about this sense of, of the wonder of life mm-hmm. that actually, I think, interestingly, in our culture, we tend to ignore yeah. because I don't know if we'd know what to do with ourselves <laughs> if, if we had this. There's this old Midrash, an old rabbinic story of um, every blade of grass has a little angel sort of calling it to grow. Mm-hmm. But if if we knew that, if we thought that, if we heard that, we'd go crazy. <laughs> You know, yeah. if, if, if everything we looked at, we said, that's amazing. That grass is amazing. That yeah. blade of grass is amazing. And so maybe we create culture in order to numb ourselves to the extraordinary, to allow it to, to peep in occasionally, but actually to almost calm ourselves from going crazy. <laughs> yeah, I like that idea. I mean, I do think that um, that it's seeping in. I think that there's the temptation to say, well, if we could just get rid of all that ordinary and live in the extraordinary all the time, why wouldn't we want that? Those are moments of awe and great wonder and really amazement. Right. But I do think that there's something about the fact that it seeps in as a matter of, of principle, again, that for me is a big that, – that starts a, a wonderful line of questioning of what is this character of 
of whatever we want to call it, being in some sense, that has this seeping in quality that we have to remember and work to get back to. Um, Yeah, I think that's a beautiful sort of beginning for a bunch of thoughts. And I I think, and hopefully you can come back and we can discuss this more. I I wonder if... If we spent all our lives living in the extraordinary, we wouldn't get jobs and we wouldn't have partners. We'd just mm-hmm. sit, you know, mouths open. And I think, <laughs> I, I think we'd struggle, wouldn't we? We wouldn't, it wouldn't be real, would it? Yeah, and I'm not even sure. I mean, we could, uh, the, the same way I moved from the ext- ordinary to the extraordinary, saying there is no ordinary without the extraordinary, we might very well move the other way and right. start to see that without the ordinary, the extraordinary stops having the same sort of thrust that it did. Well, look, this conversation has been extraordinary, and I mean that genuinely. I really enjoyed this. Um, so I want to thank you. Um, thank Sarah you Davis. so much for having me, Rabbi uh, Neil. Of course. Um, you've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amzuch from Temple Beth Shalom uh, with my guest this evening, Sarah Davis from St. John's College. It's been really profound, really challenging, and I do hope that you'll return to our show to, um, to take this conversation further. It would be my pleasure. So uh, you're listening to KSFR. Uh, with Rabbi Neil Amzrich and Soul Searching uh, from the Leadership Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe and also from Temple Beth Shalom. Until we return in, t- in two weeks' time, keep searching.